Good, and this is American Exception. This is a special episode for us. First, we have an excellent guest, Ben Norton of Multipolarista.com. He has done a lot of outstanding work over the years in subjects and areas that span the globe. We're going to be talking about the end of unipolarity and the dawn of multipolarity. After that conversation, Mike Lesiak, Seamus McGinnis, and I have a special American Exception announcement that we're really excited about. Ben Norton, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's fun being here. You run the site Multipolarista now, and uh, I have taken a lot of IOR, IR uh, coursework uh, and such over the years, so I'm familiar with this concept of polarity. But what is? Uh, how do you understand and explain the idea of, of multipolarity, and what's the significance of it? Yeah, well, the original idea came from really Latin America, because more and more in Latin America, a lot of left-wing leaders have talked about this idea of multipolarity. It actually really goes back to the 1990s, and Hugo Chavez, when he was running for president in 1998, gave a famous speech in which he said, the world is now unipolar, it was bipolar during the first Cold War, what we want is a multipolar world. That was in 1998. And then Chavez won the election. He became president in 1999. Chavez constantly talked about this idea of multipolarity. And he was working with other countries in the global south, especially in Asia, to try to build this idea of a kind of new non-aligned movement. And then, of course, after him, you had Daniel Ortega came to power back in, in Nicaragua in 2006. The Sandinistas came back and... Nicaragua talked a lot more about the idea of multipolarity. In Bolivia, Evo Morales talked a lot about multipolarity. And also Lula da Silva in Brazil talked a lot about multipolarity. And Brazil is one of the founding members of the BRICS system, B-R-I-C-S. This is a, an economic bloc bringing together Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And that was an attempt to try to build this a new structure to bring about a kind of multipolar economic order. So, you know, as the name suggests, people know, you know, what the idea of unipolarity is. It's a global political and economic system dominated by one power, and that is the United States. And that was the U.S. government's explicit intention, and it really still is, but it was clearly articulated in the 1990s with the Wolfowitz Doctrine and with the idea of full-spectrum dominance, really... The idea is that the U.S. is the only significant power, the only superpower. And we saw, you can go also back to the Grand Chessboard published by 1997 by Brzezinski, in which he declares that the goal of U.S. foreign policy should be to prevent the rise of another near-peer strategic competitor, is the term he used, in Eurasia. And of course, now there's not only one, there's actually two. There's China, which economically is quickly going to surpass the U.S., and then Russia, which is a significant military and political power, although economically it's not anywhere at the near level, anywhere near at the level of China and the U.S. So the idea of multipolarity is certainly not new, but 
in Latin America in particular, where I live, I do, I do a lot of reporting on Latin America and the Latin American left, become an important idea to challenge U.S. unipolar hegemony because, of course, Latin America, out of all regions of the world, has been so oppressed by U.S. imperialism, by the Monroe Doctrine, by Washington's idea that all of Central and South America is the U.S. backyard, or Joe Biden recently said front yard, but, I mean, it just shows this colonial mentality. And as they articulate the concept, the idea is that the world should not have these these hegemonic blocks. Instead, it should be a world based on international law that is clearly defined, not this vague idea of the rules-based international order in which Washington makes the rules and orders everyone around, that it should also be a system in which diplomatic and economic relations are bilateral, so based on what's in the mutual interest of both countries and not unilaterally dictated by the U.S., as we see with free trade agreements and the IMF and the World Bank. So, I mean... You could say that the idea of multipolarity has been around for many, many hundreds of years, even thousands of years. It's really this idea of multilateralism. But in, it's a response specifically to unipolarity. So I think we can't understand the idea of multipolarity outside of that context. And you, Aaron, I mean, your book's about this, the idea of you know, American exceptionalism, the creation of the U.S. empire, the U.S. national security state, which was created to, to defend that empire after World War II. Multipolarity is a response to U.S. unipolarity. So when people say, you know, okay, you, you criticize the U.S. empire, well, then what do you want to replace the U.S. empire? And in Latin America, the response is often multipolarity. Right. This issue of multilateralism which is uh, and versus multipolarity is a little... It, it, it's much of what you say, except that I would say that the U.S. has, and the people that have had the most power in constructing U.S. hegemony have often been, would have considered themselves multilateralists in that they carved together coalitions of, you know... Uh, coalition of the uh, willing, or uh, more yeah, properly, coalition a, of the killing. I mean, in a coalition of, even going back to the immediate post-war era, a a system where there are, you know, key nodes of like, I mean, in Marxist terms, like capital accumulation, like South Korea and Japan, obviously in Taiwan, in, in East Asia and then Western Europe in the, in the West. Right. And that was the kind of like, so they could sit, claim to have some sort of global legit legitimacy and so on. And that, that's, uh, that was a, something that they put into place. Uh, when they were one of two poles, the other pole being the the Soviet Union and the Cold War, but is but essentially multilateralism in that sense it doesn't means the opposite of what we're we're talking about. Whereas multilateralism it could be related to multipolarity and mean sort of international cooperation and as you say an adherence to international law, because that is the that's what China and Russia are asking for is inter, for countries to obey international law, which so. Other people would sneer at that and say that Russia's, you know, invasion of Ukraine was dubious according to or, or illegal according to international law. And there's an argument to be made there, you know, but for the U.S., after having brazenly violated the sovereignty of Ukraine in 2014 to say, how dare you violate the sovereignty of Ukraine? <laughs> I mean, it's a joke, but um, I guess uh, uh, something that people have pointed out as a kind of critique of 
people uh, of uh, too much enthusiasm about multipolarity is that in the past, multipolarity led to things like two world wars, so uh, which were not good, uh, we can all agree on. Is that a valid critique or is there something different about this multipolar system that is being born uh, as we speak? Yeah, it's a valid critique. I mean, there are different kinds of multipolarity and there is an argument to be made that the world was multipolar leading up to World War One, but there are a few significant differences. One, that multipolarity was a multipolarity within the colonial powers. So it's a multipolarity of colonial powers, which is not a multipolarity of non-colonial powers. And the other significant change is existing socialist governments. And this is, I think, a key point that people... They refuse to understand when they go back even to, to read or at least selectively quote from Lenin's Imperialism in the Highest Age of Capitalism, which he wrote in 1916 before the Bolshevik Revolution. Imperialism in the Highest Age of Capitalism, I think it's still extremely prescient. I think the analysis is still very valid today. A lot of the analysis, especially around finance capital, monopoly capital, we've seen that just so clearly with the financialization of Western economies with the imposition of neoliberalism, which, as Michael Hudson has often argued, is really just finance capitalism around the world. But another key difference in that analysis that Lenin made is that he made this analysis when there, was no, there were no existing socialist states. And today, I mean, you have China, which, yeah, I mean, there's definitely criticisms that can be made about the Chinese developmental model and some of the reforms after Deng Xiaoping, but it still is a socialist uh, country. It still has a government that is run by the Communist Party. And it's also taking a turn back toward the left under Xi Jinping very, very markedly. And that's one of the reasons we see this major falling out where the idea was that when, when China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization, ironically, in 2001, that China was just going to go through the same path as the Soviet Union and liberalize and subordinate itself to U.S. unipolarity, to U.S. hegemony. And of course, it didn't do that. And it didn't liberalize politically. And now it's taking a turn back toward the left and imposing more control over capital and disciplining billionaires and expanding its anti-poverty programs and talking about the need not only to, in, in, to boost the productive forces to create a bigger economy, but also to start redistribution, which they... Unfortunately, I mean, they did not focus a lot on redistribution because the argument was that we have to develop the productive forces of society. Well, they are talking about redistribution again. So, I mean, where does that argument where does that argument come from that you have to have a certain level of production before you can really achieve socialism? I mean, well, I mean, that's an argument going back to classical Marxism itself and to Karl Marx. I mean, Marx and many of the original Marxists all thought that. The first socialist revolution, of course, would be in Germany or somewhere in Western Europe in the industrialized countries, because the idea, to, to grossly simplify it, but the idea is that, you know, there is this kind of teleological process through which you have a bourgeois revolution against feudalism, which develops a capitalist economy that in turn develops the productive forces in your society, and then you have socialism. So the idea, the classical, the orthodox Marxist view, which, I mean, there, you know, there's been a Maoist critique of that, but the orthodox Marxist view is that you can't 
just go from feudalism to socialism, that you have to develop an industrial proletariat and industrialization and develop the productive forces of your economy. But anyway, I mean, that's a whole long other discussion. But the reason I just brought it up is just because China, not only being a massive superpower, but increasingly powerful, being part of the creation of this, the, the attempt to create a multipolar world definitely changes the equation because it's no longer just a multipolarity of different colonial powers like it was between Germany and France and Britain and Japan. These are all colonial powers in the United States. So we have to understand that fundamental distinction because when you actually do have existing socialist states, that has to change your calculus and in, in your analysis of imperialism. And, and then furthermore, I think there's also just a fundamental distinction, which is different, is that we've seen, for the most part, at least formally, decolonization in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now, I mean, of course, there's, there's neocolonialism, which Nkrumah articulated, and we see this especially across Africa, but also parts of Latin America, you know, Colombia, and definitely parts of Asia. You mentioned South Korea and Japan. Of course, Japan has its own colonial history, but South Korea and Japan are not very sovereign countries. So, I mean, you could say it's a no, no true Scotsman argument, but you could also just say that it's not actual multipolarity if you still have these countries that, don't, that only have nominal sovereignty, but politically and economically, especially economically, they don't really have sovereignty. It's still just a kind of modified unipolarity. And so going back to this idea of multi, multilateralism within unipolarity is, I mean, that, that's it's just the instrumentalization of the idea of multilateralism. It's true that if you go back to the League of Nations and Woodrow Wilson, I mean, one of the arc imperialists, who, you know, one of the fathers of this kind of liberal imperialist worldview that we see today that's so prominent over Ukraine and all this. I mean, that, that was a clear attempt at trying to give this fig leaf of multilateralism to justify imperialism. But of course, what was the League of Nations? It was a cartel of the colonialist powers. And of course, another classic example is the Korean War, where the U.S. used the United Nations as, again, a fig leaf to justify this borderline genocidal war, killing 3 million Koreans, burning down 80% of the buildings in northern Korea. And that was done under the aegis of the United Nations, although that was because the Soviet Union it did not exercise its boycott in protest of China not, not being given its seat in the Security Council and Taiwan being given that seat. So there are historical reasons for that, but that's another example, again, of multilateralism being instrumentalized, but in the, in the name of unipolarity, or in that case, bipolarity. So, I mean, again, you can, people can argue that it's, it's a kind of no true, no true Scotsman to say, well, it's not actually multipolarity. The point is that multipolarity is a, a goal that, that people are striving toward, and especially in the global south. I mean, that especially in Latin America, but not just Latin America. China has talked in the past few years more and more about this concept of multipolarity. It released this joint statement with Russia in early February, ironically a few weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, in which they talked about their their goal being the construction of a multipolar world. So, yeah, again, you could say that it's it's some uh, ideal, uh, it's an ideal goal to strive toward, but I think, you know, when you're given the reality of global pol of geopolitics, what, you have to pick between, you know, different models of unipolarity, bipolarity, multipolarity. 
for most of the people in the world, they, they clearly see which one they prefer. Right. Yeah, I, I think that the idea of international law being applied to countries and, and countries having a kind of compelling reason to submit to that would be because of a multipolar system, that there's no longer just one power telling everybody how it's going to be, because that's the way that the U.S. has operated and only without really acknowledging it. It's not, I don't think the average person, real, the average person doesn't think about international law and what it, the significance of the fact that the U.S. is like the the main violator of international law and that other countries have no recourse to when the U.S. violates international law. And that what, we're, what you're talking about here is creating a, a different power situation wherein these countries might have some recourse from IMF, you know, dictates and uh, the U.S., you know, forcing them to do all of these things that are against their best interests. And if you don't have economic sovereignty, then you really don't have any sovereignty at all. I mean, you can't, is anybody who's tried to earn a living uh, in this society, which is, can be, you know, extrapolated to the rest of the world, your, your material needs have to, are above all. And so, you know, this is where, you know, Europe doesn't seem to be really sovereign as we're seeing now. And Latin America has been fighting this kind of plunder for so long. The reason I asked you about this this China question is that it does seem that there is a a strain of the American what passes for the American left that really likes to critique Chinese communism from the comfort of, you know, the US and uh, other or other western countries. But it, it really in terms of what they're doing now, it is similar to what Marx was was say, was saying or it at least derives from that because he said himself that China shouldn't attempt. Uh, you couldn't really have communism because you don't have capitalism yet. That it was a stage of uh, you'd have to progress to capitalism creates certain contradictions that would give rise to socialism. That you can't have it without those, you know, uh, dynamics at at play. And China, when Cambodia, when Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge took over. Uh, the Chinese warned them. They said, don't try to achieve, because they had just gone through things like the Great Leap Forward and they were coming out of the Cultural Revolution. And they told them, maybe chill a little bit. Don't try to achieve <laughs> communism in one step, which famously Pol Pot did not heed that advice. <laughs> but that was really, uh, I mean, what what they've tried to do is create enough material production to be able to do, uh, to affect this, which I was skeptical about whether they would ever veer back to the left. And uh, in recent years, they have. I mean, they've said things that if you're an American, you think, my God, that would be nice. Cracking down <laughs> on profiteering in healthcare, housing, and education, right? Where we can't even get the president to cancel student debt, which he could do for zero dollars because it's all just computer entries. And he's like, no. And I, I've tried to figure out why, because a lot of it's held by the government and the government doesn't need it to function because of the, the dollar's you know, magic printing power. And I, I think it's the, it's the idea that the precedent it would establish, that it, it would make people suddenly grasp that this whole debt thing is, is bullshit made up by people to just enslave uh, the po- populations. I mean, maybe not literal chattel slavery, but... but discipline them. Yeah, and, and peonize them, if that's a word. I mean, and make them sources of rent extraction, uh, in different ways, like mortgage debt and and so on that people have to take on. So 
this is where the multipolarity does seem to have a big uh, impact. Is is China? Do you, do you know more much about China's attempts to create alternatives to things like the World Bank? And if that's, are you seeing those kind of projects? And in, in, like, for example, in Nicaragua, they were talking about financing a major canal project. How's, has that gone forward? Or are there things like that that China's doing there in uh, Latin America? Yeah, I mean. In terms of infrastructure, I mean, what China is doing around the world is incredible. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars being spent through, mostly through the Belt and Road Initiative. And what's interesting about the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, is that it began a decade ago with the rise of Xi Jinping. And he gave a speech in Kazakhstan in which he said that they were going to build the new Silk Road. And what was interesting is back when, when Hillary Clinton was... Secretary of State in the Obama administration, the U.S. basically tried to steal that idea from China. And in response to China's announcement that it was building a new Silk Road within Asia to, to unite Central Asia and East Asia, and then go to eventually with the goal of building that new Silk Road over to Europe, the U.S. announced its own creation of a new Silk Road to, to to compete with the Chinese New Silk Road. But of course, the difference between the U.S. and China is the U.S. constantly says it's going to do something and then never actually does it. And China actually does it, often quietly, without much fanfare. And what happened is that this idea that China had, again, only really over a decade ago, not, not that long ago, that has expanded drastically and it became the Belt and Road Initiative. First, it was the New Silk Road, then it became the One Belt, One Road. And then now it's just simply called the Belt and Road Initiative because it's not just one belt and one road. It's many around the entire world. And right now, more than half of the, the world's countries have actually signed on to BRI. Of course, largely in the global south. But even a few countries in like Central Europe have signed on to this. And it's a massive infrastructure project that is meant to basically move the part of the global economy back east, where it was really historically until the rise of European colonialism. Before British colonialism, India, the Indian subcontinent, was responsible for around 25% of global GDP. And as Indian you know, uh, anti-colonialists, um, as Indian researchers and academics have often pointed out, I mean, that we, we saw over 170 years of British colonialism, the extraction of more than $40 trillion of wealth from the Indian subcontinent by the British Empire. And we saw the de-development of India. Life expectancy actually decreased. Literacy rates decreased. And of course, the percentage of, I mean, the GDP technically increased, but the percentage of the global economy that India's GDP represented decreased drastically and the per capita GDP decreased. So we saw a, a series of a, a process of de-development through European colonialism that moved the heart of, of the global economy away from Asia where it had been, especially with China and India, and to this transatlantic uh, economic order, which is very strange if you think about it, because, I mean, it's much easier to, to send goods to do trade by land, and it's much easier within Eurasia than it is to send these big boats across the Atlantic Ocean. But 
for a variety of historical reasons, you had the creation of this kind of transatlantic axis, the creation of this idea of a West with a capital W, the creation of NATO, the Bretton Woods system, the IMF and the World Bank. But, I mean, I think really a lot of that infrastructure was developed only right at the end of World War II. And the idea of this stuff being set in stone, I think, is, is as a common idea. But it's, it's actually really novel. Even, the, for instance, the European Union didn't exist until after the end of the first Cold War, until the 1990s. There was the, the European community and other regional organizations. But a unified European Union with a central currency, that's, that's really not even 30 years old. And now it's kind we of a see, CIA project, too, from what I understand, that it was really a U.S. Uh, a, a U.S. idea to make Europe more manageable and to be able to discipline them. Yeah, absolutely. And now we see with the creation of alternative blocks, I mean, this is also what multipolarity looks like, because it's the difference, of course, between bipolarity and multipolarity. Is it was a bipolar world during the first Cold War, and you could say that in many ways we're actually probably going more toward a bipolar world now than we are going toward a multipolar world. But with the creation of all of these different institutions, you have regional blocks like, like ASEAN. ASEAN is an example of multipolarity. The BRICS, and as part of the BRICS, I mean, it includes different institutions, including they basically have their own competitors to the IMF and the World Bank. The competitor to the, the World Bank is called the New Development Bank. And basically, the, the way they, they, they created the New Development Bank, bank is that they split up the capital of the bank, and each country in the BRICS provided 20%, so one-fifth of the capital, the starting capital for the BRICS bank, the New Development Bank. And that's, an, that's a clear attempt to compete with the, the World Bank. And then you also had a, you have a, the CRA, which is a competitor to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and that's called the Contingent Reserve Agreement, which is supposed to function as the IMF was supposed to function when it was set up in the Bretton Woods Conference, which is for balance of payments. If you, know, there's, uh, you need to settle a balance of payments issue. But what's interesting is how the IMF has kind, of, has kind of ballooned and grown since its creation, and the IMF and the World Bank have become very similar Whereas the original goal of the World Bank was it was supposed to provide capital for development projects and infrastructure and all of that to a country. And then the IMF was supposed to be for balance of payments. And now the IMF is similar to the World Bank and, and like gave $50 billion to Argentina, which is clearly not like a short-term uh, loan needed for like balance of payments issues. That's, that's clearly a long-term World Bank-style loan. So... I mean, anyway, the point is that BRICS, in some ways, was kind of modeled after that. But the idea was to, to do this within the South, on the idea of South-South cooperation. So, I mean, there are so many different institutions that have been created. Honestly, some of them are more formal than they are uh, actually challenging the, in, the economic infrastructure. So, as an example, another one is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization which gets very little discussion in the West. A lot of people don't even know what it is, but it includes half of the global population. It includes China, India, Pakistan, Russia, Central Asian countries. Iran just became a permanent member. This is a massive political organization. It's not really economic, although they're talking about making an economic element of it. 
And the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was originally created to deal with problems with like extremism and terrorism, and especially with a lot of these like Western-backed Salafi jihadist groups who were wreaking havoc in like Xinjiang and Central Asia, as we saw with the recent color revolution attempt in Kazakhstan. That's kind of how it started, but it's become over time more and more of an economic organization, and it's become also again a kind of new pole. In the, in the talk of this creation of this kind of multipolar system, so you have ASEAN, you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you have BRICS, you have the African Union, which of course was effectively neutered, also by the fact that in many parts of Northern Africa and Western Africa, they're still part of this French economic zone where they don't even have their own sovereign currency, and they have to keep half of their their central bank reserves in France, in the Paris, in Paris, in the central, French central bank. So, I mean. All of these institutions are an example of like the breakdown of unipolarity, but that doesn't mean that just because unipolarity is breaking down, of course, that that the institutions that are created to challenge that are necessarily ideal or good, but they are different and they do provide more possibilities for countries, especially in the global south, that have only had the option of the World Bank and the IMF for what sixty years. The people that did Bretton Woods, I mean, for someone who has spent a lot of time researching the criminality of the U.S. empire、uh, and the way that we've gone about building this this world order,、um, it's kind of a tricky thing to grapple with. But there were actually elements of、uh, you know reasonable benevolence in the in the people that established Bretton Woods, and even the IMF, the way it was set up originally, people like Harry Dexter White. They were progressive internationalists, which are not the same as the people I was referring to earlier—the like multilateralists、uh, of the Rockefeller, you know, World Trade Council on Foreign Relation types that really wanted to set up this global capitalist imperium over, you know, the, the American century, right? And the progressive internationalists in America,、uh, who had some input in Bretton Woods, were people like Henry Wallace or Harry Dexter White, and Rose. I think FDR himself, honestly, was like had a, had a very different ideas for colonialism and you know via Indochina, for example, he wouldn't have done what Truman did, which was、uh, you know ignore Ho Chi Minh. But so these institutions did change from the IMF was made to help countries that had balance of payments problems to deal with them, and some of the things that they were allowed to do or measures they were allowed to encourage were actual tariffs. Uh, for things to control their to manage their trade to help their their balance of payments、uh, programs and the U.S. used to re- recommend things like land reform at some points under limited circumstances and the places where they did allow this it was a huge success like they did that in Taiwan South Korea Japan right like these were things like if they allowed these countries to do this then you could actually have a kind of capitalism that was f- functional and, and b- largely. Created a pro- prosperous societies with with plenty of problems, and I'm not saying these were like great things. But who really knows how things might have developed if the if these sort of progressive aspects were allowed to flourish? But I think it's a it's a ultimately I think that the victory of these more、uh, you know avaricious forces in U.S. society that would go on to dominate the. International scene as well was kind of overdetermined because they had so much money and power. So now, the IMF instead of 
trying to potentially help countries deal with these balance of payments crises, they seize upon them to maximize the advantage of Wall Street in these countries. They impose, uh, I mean, they will have countries nationalize and sell off resources that would potentially really help them to generate foreign currency for and, and stave off balance of payments crises. They give them terrible advice on purpose that will make, that will crush labor and sell off all of their resources. And then the only way to like avoid these uh, balance of payments problems and huge deficits is to uh, follow IMF dictates and try to generate enough dollars of which the U.S. can make infinite amounts and these other countries have to scramble and like sell real things for. I mean, it wasn't originally like that. And the World Bank was really the bank for, it had another longer name, which was the bank for like post-war reconstruction or something like that before it was called the World Bank. And it was to rebuild countries that were devastated by World War II now, and I mean, this is a critique that's been made for decades now, they give loans to countries that facilitate a lot of corruption, put countries into debt, potentially lead to balance of payments crises, at which point the IMF will come in and demand, you know, the pound of flesh to uh, give them a bailout of some kind. So they really were um, institutions that were that were gradually repurposed to do the opposite of what they were originally supposed to do, which is help to facilitate a, a, a equitable uh, and just global and stable global economy. Now they thrive on instability and they are there to screw everyone in perpetuity. So it's no wonder that people want alternatives and China seems to be working in this direction. Um, but for all these countries that try to stand up, especially in Latin America, they seem to run huge risks Um Brazil, you mentioned Brazil, and they were one of the founders of the BRICS, the, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And then it seemed like with when Bolsonaro, or when they took down Lula and Dilma, that this really derailed Brazil on purpose, of course. Um, but but Lula has been able to re-enter the political scene, and he was calling recently for a currency to Brazil to adopt a currency that could be used across Latin America to supplant, you know, U.S. dollar hegemony. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that they went, they moved against Dilma and Lula, as far as I understand, was the issue of Petrobras uh, petroleum and that the, the U.S. really wanted to privatize that uh, because there's a lot of oil and offshore oil and other things that they wanted, to, other oil resources they wanted to get their hands on. Do you think Lula is, is Lula going to survive? And I mean, I know you don't have, you can't guess more, more than I am, but are, is he going to be assassinated? Or what are they going to, are they going to throw him back in jail? I mean, he just seems to be messing with the masters of the universe who are reeling, but still not powerless. So what, what is, what do you see happening there? Yeah, well, I mean, you hit the nail on the head about Petrobras. In fact, it, it's May 19th today, and in the past few weeks, Bolsonaro has been talking about privatizing Petrobras, which has been one of their goals, kind of like the, the, uh, the gem, like the, the main goal that they had of trying to privatize uh, Brazil's state assets. He's been talking about doing that in the past few weeks after privatizing many other state institutions. And we need to keep in mind that his economic minister, Paulo Guedes, is a literal Chicago boy, or uh, Pinochetista, not a Chicago boy. I mean, he's, he's a Chicago boy politically. He's not literally in the sense that he, he's not affiliated with the University of Chicago, but he is a Chicago boy in the sense that he worked in Chile. 
He worked in Pinochet's Chile teaching economics, and he is the economic minister under Bolsonaro. So it's interesting is, in fact, the one of the most prominent Russian military officials, who is the head of the Russian Security Council, just gave a speech this week in which he, he condemns Western, what he called neoliberal fascism. And, I mean, Brazil is a good example of that. It's this, or of course, Chile is the classic example, but it's this combination of fascism and neoliberalism. And Paulo Guedes, the Brazilian economic minister, is pushing really hard to, to privatize Petrobras. I think now they recognize that it's very likely that Lula is going to win the election. So they're just trying to do as much damage as they can before the election in October. But, I mean, you raise, you raise a good point. What's going to happen with Lula? It's really hard to say. I mean, the thing is, the U.S., they imprisoned Lula in 2018. The U.S. backed this bogus attempt to, uh, to this bogus anti-corruption operation called Lava Jato, which means Operation Car Wash. And it was overseen largely by this judge, Sergio Moro, who is clearly a, a U.S. intelligence asset, and he became so-called super justice minister when Bolsonaro became president. So that's clearly a blatant conflict of interest. The judge who oversaw Operation Car Wash was promoted, was rewarded, with not only being justice minister, but being super justice minister, one of the most powerful figures in the Brazilian government until recently. He resigned because there was a split between him and Bolsonaro, and then Sergio Moro has tried to run for president, although the right-wing oligarchy in Brazil has been pressuring Sergio Moro to drop out. He probably will because they don't want to divide the right-wing vote and they want Bolsonaro to stay in power. So anyway, the point is that after Sergio Moro was promoted and Bolsonaro came into power, he took a trip, Bolsonaro and Moro, they together took a trip to Langley, Virginia. They went to CIA headquarters in an, an open public trip clearly to thank the CIA for helping back this operation in which Bolsonaro basically stole the election by Moro imprisoning Lula on fake charges of corruption. And since then, by the way, in, in the last two years, the Brazilian justice system, which is certainly not some great progressive justice system, but they have had numerous court cases in which all of the charges against Lula have been subsequently dropped his record has been expunged, and the UN Human Rights Committee, for what it's worth, they recently, this, this past April, their legal experts published a decision saying that Lula's legal rights and political rights were violated, that he was arbitrarily imprisoned, that, that the case against him was a ridiculous kangaroo court, that there was no legitimacy. So that was a coup. I mean, that was the second coup in three years. The, the coup against against. Uh, Dilma Rousseff in 2016 through this impeachment, again, on bogus charges of corruption. And at the time, I remember polls showing that of all of the, the major political parties in Brazil, the PT, the Workers' Party, according to mainstream bourgeois firms, was the sixth most corrupt party, which, I mean, you know, there are parties that are less corrupt, but they're tiny parties. Of all the major parties, of all the really big parties in Brazil, the PT was the least corrupt party. And the, pay, the, uh, the Social Liberal Party, hilariously named Social Liberal Party of Bolsonaro, was one of the most corrupt parties. 
So it had nothing to do with corruption. It was a DOJ-backed operation of lawfare, and, and Lula has spoken o- openly about that, of legal warfare, judicial warfare, to overthrow Dilma in 2016 and then prevent Lula from being the candidate in 2018. So honestly, with all of that, I don't think there's anything they can do to Lula other than maybe like assassinate him, but they can't really... They they. It's like here in, in Nicaragua in 2018. You know, I, when I, whenever I talk about all of the things that are happening in Nicaragua with the infrastructure projects with China, you mentioned the canal that they're building with China to challenge the Panama Canal, and they're also building public housing and all this stuff. Whenever I talk about that, people often joke, "Well, uh, Ortega should be careful. A U.S.-backed coup's coming." Well, no, they already tried it, and you can only try it every few years, right? Like you can't just do a, a coup attempt again and again and again and again. They tried it in 2018, and they used, they put all the resources into it. They, it was extremely violent. Hundreds of people were killed. The country was destabilized, and they failed. And then, of course, what happened is that strengthened the Sandinista front. Because when these coups fail, they often strengthen the forces that the coup was targeting. Just as the briefly successful coup in Bolivia in 2019, it was successful for less than a year for 11 months. And then the movement towards socialism party got more votes than it had gotten in the original election against Evo. The U.S. empire can only organize so many coups in such a short period of time, and the people are just not going to tolerate it. In the case of Bolivia, I was saying that Evo Morales, he did win the election clearly in October of 2019. He won in the first round, but it was not the overwhelming landslide victory that the movement towards socialism party had a year later at the end of 2020 in those elections. And that was an example of this coup just completely, in some ways, backfiring and strengthening Evo Morales' party, the movement towards socialism. So in the case of Brazil, Bolsonaro has been a complete disaster, even for many Brazilian capitalists. You know, we, we, we can distinguish the Brazilian or any country's national bourgeoisie from the comprador bourgeoisie the comprador bourgeoisie are like the the capitalists the finance capitalists whose investments are largely abroad and they're not in domestic production and for a lot of the national bourgeoisie in brazil bolsonaro has been an abject disaster the economy is basically on the path towards shrinking and i mean there has been a massive economic crisis before the massive inflation. The point is that the U.S. already did a coup, back to coup in Brazil in 2016 and 2018. I don't see them being able to do it again against Lula because Bolsonaro is so unpopular. And Lula, we also have to understand who Lula is. I mean, when he governed, he didn't govern like Hugo Chavez. He governed as a center-left progressive with a non-aligned foreign policy. But he wasn't expropriating wealthy people. He wasn't, you know, nationalizing big corporations. And when he left office, Lula had a roughly 80% approval rating. He governed from 2003 to 2011. Roughly 80%, making him one of the most popular leaders in history. So Lula is very much a kind of unifying figure. And I don't think that the, the U.S. and the, the, Bolivia, uh, the Brazilian rather oligarchy can pull it off again. There's talk about Bolsonaro planning a military coup, 
And even the mainstream neoliberal newspaper, the largest newspaper in Brazil, their version of the New York Times, which is the Folha de Sao Paulo, published an article saying that Bolsonaro was planning a military coup. The fact that they are saying that, I think makes it pretty clear it's not going to happen. It's, it's going to fail. I don't doubt that he's planning it. But again, it shows that in some ways this, the U.S. empire's energy has been spent. You could, and it does definitely show, I think, a decline in U.S. hegemony. That's what I think, too. I, I think that this Ukraine business, people are not getting how this represents not uh, a victory of any kind by the U.S. over over Russia. The U.S. may have intentionally provoked this, but I think they may have been quite stupid in, so, in doing so. I mean, they threatened and threatened Russia by weaponizing Ukraine, and it... it it, you get this invasion, but now we're seeing that it's having consequences on U.S. hegemony, like you can see with what's been happening in Brazil and in, in Bolivia, in Mexico. Wasn't AMLO talking about nationalizing lithium? And they're one of the lithium you know, powerhouses in the world. Like Mexico Bolivia. did nationalize its lithium. Yeah. And that's going to be a, a, an increasingly important resource. Um, and so it seems like this is something that you wouldn't have thought possible in in past decades but it's happening and it seems like the u.s is really reeling in these areas so in latin america you have the trends where like as you say the if the brazilian version of the new york times is acting as a counter coup kind of outlet that says something about what what the brazilian political class is actually thinking and that they may have had their fill of being dominated by by Washington, um, and then in in the Middle East you have the U.S. What they tried to do with Iraq and remake the Middle East, they have really failed. They've united Iran, Iraq, and Syria with, with East with Lebanon with a Hezbollah contingency there as kind of a counter Israeli U.S. you know Western bloc there, and this. I mean, they, they, they're having to do things that are nakedly aggressive, like invade Syria and uh, steal their oil, occupy their land, not even talk about it, really. It's like not even really discussed, which is really astounding when you think about what they've done in Syria and how they've and it's acknowledged that the only place that ISIS still exists is U.S. occupied territory. <laughs> but nobody ever puts two and two together to say this points to something unmistakably messed up and somebody must explain this instead there's no call for that it's i just think that and they and i think the u.s is going to have to accept that the situation in ukraine is not going to play out the way that they have said i think i don't see how you can reverse these gains in the east and it will be a defeat for ukraine they will come out worse and it's going to be no no amount of propaganda can cover up that they wrecked this country forever and so how how do you think that this is going to to play out because it's it really does represent kind of the west the US hitting a wall I mean are they hoping China can be provoked into invading Taiwan and that they can recreate the the bipolar world order since the unipolar world order is obviously kind of a done deal it seems like they're trying to recreate a a, a circumscribed bipolar world order uh, to cut their losses but I don't know that they're going to be able to do that that's definitely right. I mean, I think we're already in it. The, the sanctions on Russia, I think, was the, the opening blows, the opening salvos of this new bipolar world order. 
for years we've been talking a lot about the idea of the new Cold War, the second Cold War. And I think that started several years ago. You could really go back to the Obama administration, again, in the Hillary Clinton State Department, declaring the pivot to Asia. As Brian Becker often says, it, it means a pivot to war in Asia. That, that was really the beginning of the, the new Cold War, the second Cold War. But I think the beginning of this new Iron Curtain that, that has been built by the West, by the way, not by Russia, just like the original Iron Curtain was not it was not built by the Soviet Union. It was built around the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries by the capitalist West, which is, of course, the exact opposite of the way it's taught in U.S. history classes. Well, I think we're seeing something very similar now, and, and it's going to inevitably lead to a kind of bipolar world order because what it means is countries are not going to be allowed to do business with Russia if they significantly rely on the U.S. and Europe as trading partners. It's they're going to be forced to choose. And especially if they can't do trade with dollars. We now see Russia at breakneck speed de-dollarizing. We see that Russia is already buying, uh, excuse me, that China is already buying Russian energy in the Chinese yuan. That India and Russia are doing economic deals, trade deals with the Indian rupee uh, and the Russian ruble together. We see that even Bangladesh is talking about doing trade in the Chinese yuan in order to buy wheat from Russia and energy. So, the, you know, Bangladesh and India are certainly not countries with anti-imperialist governments. On the contrary, in India, I mean, ironically, the BJP party, the far-right ruling party in India, is the most pro-American party and this is the most pro-American government in India since its foundation in 1947, after the overthrow of British colonialism. The People forget that the Indian National Congress Party that governed really up until the, the 90s and early 2000s, they, I mean, they took a neoliberal turn, but originally in the 1940s and 50s, they were the leaders of the non-aligned movement. They were, I mean, uh, Nehru, the leader of the INC, Indian National Congress, was one of the main founders of the non-aligned movement, along with Tito and Nasser and Sukarno. And they were close allies of the Soviet Union. Even though they were part of the non-aligned movement, India was, everyone knew that India was very close to the Soviet Union and had very complex relations with the People's Republic of China. Still today, India has very negative relations with China. But in the past few decades, under Congress, but especially when BJP came into power and Modi became prime minister in 2014, India very uh, significantly turned toward the U.S. for the first time in its relations, especially under Trump. Modi and Trump were very close. There, I don't know if you remember, there was this ridiculous thing in Texas when Modi visited. It was called Howdy Modi. That was the literal name of the event, Howdy Modi. Well... The fact that even India, despite its subordination to the U.S. in many ways, it has been clearly saying, we're not going to impose sanctions on Russia. We're going to do business with Russia to buy Russian wheat and energy and fertilizer because India needs those so much. And now they're even doing that trade in other currencies. It really does show that economically, a lot of these countries are deciding that they're they're actually going to continue doing trade with countries like Russia. And then the U.S. and Europe are going to punish a lot of these countries and force them to pick a side. So 
I think that clearly through the use of sanctions and by pushing countries out of the the financial system, they're going to be the U.S. is going to create this bipolar order, and it's going to be devastating for many economies. And Europe is on the front lines of this. The European economy as like a whole, like the EU, is is as Michael Hudson says, it's going to be a dead zone. They don't have cheap energy. They're going to pay five times as much for U.S. LNG, liquefied natural gas, which they don't even have the infrastructure to use. And that means that not only is it prohibitively expensive to heat your house if you're an average person with your energy bills increasing by three, four times, but if you run a company, how are you going to be able to, to compete internationally if you have such a high overhead just for energy? It's, it's, it, it's really a kind of a way for the U.S. to destroy Europe's economy. And then I think what's actually going to happen is that the European economies are just going to be completely subordinated by the U.S. economy. I think that's what we're seeing the beginning of. And this new bipolar economic system where if you do trade in the, with the U.S. dollar and within the, the U.S. controlled financial system, you can't have significant trade with China and Russia. And we'll see what a lot of countries are not going to they're not going to say, okay, fine, we'll just go along with the U.S. A lot of countries are, already have China as their major trading partner. So it's a very interesting moment. Right. I, I make the argument, and I'm not going to elaborate it here, but maybe because I think my, my listeners have, have heard it before, uh, but maybe when I come on uh, Multipolarista when the, around when the book comes out, I'll, I'll go into it. But For sure. I've, I've, I've started to make the argument more that flat out the Cold War never really ended, that the that the takedown of the Soviet Union was in part of, done by the U.S. where, you know, this, the, they, the, Peter Dale Scott talks about hearing a CIA officer boast about how they collapsed the price of oil in the, or around that time, which led to Gorbachev not being able to fund any of these programs that he had wanted to uh, as part of like, you know, Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, and this because they wanted to break up the Soviet Union, and that immediately afterwards they start launching these operations, these sort of Air America type operations, like in Azerbaijan, using jihadis that they, they just sort of relocate them. They do it in Azerbaijan. They go into Yugos, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, they expand NATO. Um, you know, you can really look at the history since the end of World War or since the end of the Cold War as the U.S attempting to through not overt warfare but through covert operations and economic means and and counter terror uh to get into the former soviet union and extend their influence and dominance over that whole region but i think that they have it's been one failure it's been largely a a failure like their attempts to get into central asia seem that the with the withdrawal from afghanistan seems to be an acknowledgement that, that that this did not work so i think the withdrawal of afghanistan has to be looked at in conjunction with what's happening in Ukraine, because it's it's like a it's like a fallback position in a, in a way, because Russia, with its enormous natural resources and potential productive capacity, could go could more or less go it alone or be another uh, center of gravity in the global economy. And the U.S. never wanted it. That's why McCain said stuff like, "Oh, it's just a, it's a gas station with nukes." But that's because that's what the U.S. wanted it to be. They wanted to turn it into a producer of raw materials run by a corrupt oligarchy 
thanks to shock therapy and everything else. That has to be seen as war, a form of warfare, not as an attempt to restructure the Russian economy. They were suckers to the extent that they listened to the U.S., honestly. But there were powerful forces behind Yeltsin. He had to shell parliament. I mean, it's not like Russia was really totally behind these <laughs> ideas. So now it just is, it seems like it, the U.S. is doing more ridiculous things and asking more ridiculous things of their former partners. And it has the, it's taken on the tone or the tenor or the character of like the story of a, of a business that collapses and it has to do increasingly ridiculous things to try to like somehow snatch victory from the jaws of defeat here. <laughs> because like these, uh, the narrative has gotten so uh, absurd and the propaganda makes a lot of people accept it, but we've been subjected to things like Russiagate which was a total fraud and it's been exposed as a fraud and it just sits there in broad daylight. The, the war in Syria is a disaster and it really was clearly a war that the U S waged to overthrow this government, a dirty war using jihadis of all, you know, of all people after nine 11, which takes some balls to use these Al Qaeda types after <laughs> they've supposedly become your enemy after nine 11. And you need to forget the history before that. And now you need to forget the history after that because they're in Libya in Syria, and now they're they're in they're in uh, the part of Syria that we're occupying, right? ISIS. I, I mean, it. So that's a ridiculous. This the Screeple poisoning, where he gets discovered by a porting down intelligence officer after he's been poisoned by this this flagrantly Russian poison, uh, but he doesn't die. And he was trying to go back to Russia at the time, and he's not allowed to talk to anybody. I mean, that whole thing is is ridiculous. Hmm. Uh, I just I feel like and the the Ukraine business they can't they can't acknowledge in the U.S. press that there was a coup, even though it's the most obvious thing in the world. So we're having this magic land discussion about Ukraine, where it's like there's this country Ukraine, and they had a good, they have a good guy Zelensky he's led there, but Russia invaded because Putin is so bad because we heard so much about how bad he is, but none of this stuff really stands up to much scrutiny. I mean, is I. Has it always been this ridiculous? Because you get older and you get you look at things more shrewdly and you think like, oh, man, how do people not get this? But I don't think that it's always been as over the top ridiculous as this. And this must portend something. I mean, is there do you think that there's anything that the U.S. can do to reverse these trends or 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 what? Other than blowing up the world, which would, <laughs> which, would which would arrest the development of a multipolar system. Well, and there are there are some psychos in the U.S. government who wouldn't be opposed to that as a possibility. I mean, we really need to keep in mind how close the world came to nuclear annihilation with people like Curtis LeMay, who wanted nuclear war. This is the guy, the head of Strategic Air Command. I mean, these were these are very significant figures back in in the 1950s in the Taiwan Strait crisis. There were a lot of people pushing Eisenhower to nuke mainland China. And if the U.S. had waged nuclear war on China, it probably would have led to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union as well. So, and then, if, I mean, people talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but although that's an important event historically, especially in terms of the JFK assassination and all of that, it's, it's also not the only time that the U.S. came close to using nuclear weapons. Certainly not the only time. There were many people. They tried people. to in Vietnam. Uh, they tried to. They they encouraged the French. They said, "Come on, we'll give you these nukes. Can't you just drop some nukes on them?" And the French were like, "No, if we do that, we'll kill our own people. You're, you guys are crazy." 
Yeah. So they, I, there's, there's, they always want to do. They use it. Ellsberg says they use it. The U.S. has repeatedly used it like a robber uses a gun to get what they want diplomatically. There was an article published in in the Washington Post back in 1982 called "When Ike Was Asked to Nuke Vietnam." This is what you're referencing here. I just want to mention because. You know, uh, some of our favorite brothers are involved, the Dulles brothers. This, this is a, a quote from the Washington Post here, that Dulles, this is, they're talking about John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State. Dulles, speaking about nuclear weapons at a restricted meeting of NATO foreign ministers, said, quote, such weapons must now be treated as, in fact, having become conventional. So, again, a meeting of NATO foreign ministers John Foster Dulles says nukes are now conventional weapons. And he also said, according to minutes of a meeting in 1954, John Foster Dulles said, quote, Our concept envisions a fight with nuclear weapons rather than the commitment of ground forces. And it said, The secretary stated that in case of an all-out Viet Minh attack, he foresaw American bombing of Tonkin and probably general war with China. So, they were openly, the Dulles brothers were openly talking about having a nuclear exchange with China. So, yeah, I mean, that is a, that's, a, that's a non-zero possibility. But that, is said, that, that said, at the same time, I do think that any objective viewer, any objective observer can see what's happening around the world and recognize a massive crisis within the United States. In, in both its imperial infrastructure around the world, but also domestically, without a doubt. I mean, this country is completely paralyzed. It can't, get, it can't accomplish anything. And it's also, I think, on the, board of, board, the verge of civil war. I mean, we'll see how it goes. But I personally think that maybe not in five years, maybe not in 10, but in 20 years, this, the country cannot be held together. You already had, under Trump, multiple governors saying that they refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the president, which, I mean, obviously I hate Trump, and I, I don't think any U.S. president's legitimate, especially the, the, numerous, pre, the numerous presidents. What is it? Uh, three of the past five presidents did not even win the popular vote. Clearly, Bush stole the election and didn't win the popular vote, and obviously Trump didn't either. So... Uh, there's that element, but then there's also the fact that every time that there's a new president, basically the other party is going to say that they don't recognize the legitimacy of the president. You're going to have states that refuse to abide by federal law. I mean, anyway, we're seeing these massive cascading crises outside and inside the U.S. But all of that said, I mean, I clearly wasn't alive in the 70s. I'm in my 30s still. And I've talked to people in, who were politically active in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of people also then, a lot of revolutionaries, thought the U.S. was on the verge of revolution. There were a lot of very serious problems, the, especially domestically, with inflation and economic crisis, the, the OPEC uh, gas crisis. You also had the U.S. Take, taking, the do, taking the dollar off of gold in 1971, I mean, there are so the, many... the oil crises were the that was the U.S. that did that though. That yeah, was, you're right that people re, people at the time perceived this as oh man the world is going to hell I'm paying eight bucks for gas. 
which did suck for people, but it actually, what it did was it sucked all those dollars that they had, you know, the U.S. had a balance of payments problem itself because it didn't have the gold. And then it, it ginned up those, because who were the countries that did it? Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Iran, and they were the huge oil producers and they were all U.S. puppets. Yeah. But then, well, but the, and it took years for people to, for that to even become an idea that circulated on the left very widely. I mean, it's it's amazing how bad the liber, the left or liberal left has been in the U.S. Like they just do not think in the terms that these that the people running shit think in terms of geopolitics. Yeah, well, I mean, that's also the beginning of the real beginning of the petrodollar in Saudi Arabia pushing the petrodollar. But I mean, but I just mentioned that in the sense of instability within the U.S. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen this this really interesting documentary that was made, Punishment Park. Have you ever seen that? No. Punishment Park is this brilliant documentary that's it's like a it's like one of the early um, early mockumentaries, and it's by um, uh, in 1971, and it's by Peter Watkins, who is a very interesting filmmaker. He's done some like a uh, mockumentary styles, like he did one on La Comune, which is like uh, and it, like a very long mockumentary style attempt to try to like recreate the Paris Commune. But he made this mockumentary in 1971 called Punishment Park, which is about basically like a kind of fascist uh, regime in the U.S. It's kind of like implied it's like a Nixonian fascist regime that creates like these concentration camps for leftists and put and makes them go through these kangaroo courts. And then they have to like do like this uh, this what is it? Uh, not the great game. What is that? What is that famous uh, short the Hunger Games? Yeah, basically, but there was a, there was like a short story before that, or like a oh, novel. Oh, The Running Man. But no, that was that was the the eighties movie, right? There yeah, was like they, a there novel. There was a short story based on that too. It was a similar. Yeah. Well, anyway, so it's it's like or similar. Squid idea. Games today. The Squid Games seems like the newest version of that. Yeah, theme. exactly. Pardon the interruption here, but as I re-listened to this, it occurred to me that Ben was probably talking about the short story, The Most Dangerous Game. Some of you probably figured that out, uh, which was really. The precursor to the Running Man, Hunger Games, and Squid Games and such. Okay, back to our discussion. So this documentary back in 71 about this like fascist takeover, but I mean, a lot, that actually scared a lot of people when it came out at the time in the 1970s because they, th- they thought it was a real documentary because Peter Watkins is not American, he's British, so... Anyway, but the point is that... <laughs> it always sounds serious to American listeners. No, p- people outside of the U.S. thought oh, okay, it was real. Okay. And, and anyway... The point is that, I mean, if you go back and you look, there was this, there was actually a list. This is in this book, um, um, uh, uh, what is it? America's War on Maoists. Let me look this up. Um, there's, this, there's research in there about how the U.S. government made a list of all of the leftists they would throw in concentration camps if there was a revolution or a, a, a significant crisis. And anyway, the point is that, that, that it's called Heavy Radicals, The FBI's Secret War on America's Maoists. It's an interesting book. Um, by why would they bother with Maoists? I yeah, mean, exactly. Maoism makes no like the whole issue of Maoism is how do you adapt Marxism to pre-capitalist colon you know uh, semi-colonized society? So what in the hell would you even do if you're American? Go around Appalachia and try to find the yeah. poorest people and get them to rise up? Well, what what's funny also is that we now know because of declassification of COINTELPRO records that the that the US had that the FBI and US intelligence agencies had been supporting certain Maoist groups against the <laughs> pro-Soviet factions. Anyway, the anyway the point is though of course. That, that what I learned from reading that book is that there were serious plans made 
under Nixon, but not just Nixon, in the U.S. government by the national security state, they had a list that's now declassified with like 50,000 names of leftists, socialists, communists, labor organizers, radicals. Yeah, Operation Garden Plot. That was... There was a there were a bunch of those under Nixon. That yeah, who would and be Reagan? Reagan revives those kind of things too. Rex eighty four. Yeah, the people who'd be thrown in concentration camps. And anyway, the point is that a lot of people thought that that you know this is this is the peak of the anti colonial struggles all across the world. The majority of countries in the world have socialist governments, despite the Sino Soviet split. I mean, a lot of people thought that that was the end of the U.S. empire, right? In the nineteen sixties and seventies, it was this moment of massive crisis. You have 68 in France, which also ended up kind of partially being like a color revolution, by the way, uh, because de Gaulle was like pro-Soviet and not pro-NATO. And anyway, that's a complicated story as well. And ironically, they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him in the early 60s. And the CIA was and the JFK said, I don't I didn't tell them to kill you, but I can't control the CIA. That's what he told de Gaulle. Well, and also uh, the French Communist Party thought the CIA was behind 68. Meanwhile, there are parts of the French national security state that thought the Soviet Union was behind it, but the Soviet Union was against it because it was actually mostly Maoists who were behind 68. Anyway, whatever, that history is very fascinating. But the reason I just mentioned all of that, we could, we could spend hours talking about the, the inner details, but it, it shows this massive instability across the West and this, this mainstream idea that, that, the so, that socialism is on the rise, that capitalism is on the decline, the South is, is on the rise, and that the U.S. empire was going to be defeated. And then we saw what happened in the 1980s, a massive counter-revolution. Like, the 80s is like the worst decade ever. I mean, people talk about how shitty the 90s was, and it was bad. But the 80s, I mean, you have the rise of neoliberalism, Thatcherism, Reaganism, uh, counter-revolution, the Contra War. I mean, like, and then leading up into, you know, the 1990s. So... We could be, in, I hope not, but we could be in a similar moment, right? So I, I don't want, you know, Brian Becker, when I've talked to him about this, he, he just always cautions on not being too overly optimistic because the situation we're in now, it does look like the U.S. empire is in fatal decline and, you know, you have the rise of China. But well, we saw what happened when the U.S. was defeated in Vietnam and then... A decade later, you have Reaganism, and you have the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union. So, well, I got to say, I'm kind of I'm excited for you to read the, those chapters in my book that deal with the '60s and '70s because I concur with a lot of that analysis. With some, I actually put the victory of Reagan as the victory of the deep state. That like Definitely. everything there was there was the '70s were very. Uh, chaotic, but it, it was a chaos of the the power elite of the U.S. managing uh, these crises. In '68, they were terrified. That's what Louis Latham said. He said he was at Bohemian Grove in 1968 in the spring or whatever, and that there was an atmosphere of absolute terror among these, you know, right wing uh, super establishment guys. But they they saved that off in the U.S. by getting rid of by just straight up murdering MLK. And then Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy had gone to Brazil a year before. Uh, this was in maybe 67 or 68. And he was told where to go by the State Department. And he got pissed and he said, God, you think, not, you think uh, United Fruit was still running everything? And then he went to Brazil and these people were like cheering for him uh, at this. At some, and he came out and spoke to them uh, at, 
I guess just sort of he gets out of his car and stops to speak to these protesters. And then he says, and on to the palace, right? Now go on to the palace, like meaning like, you know, go whatever, protest or however you want to take that or go overthrow the government. But that was a government that Johnson had installed in 64. And, you know, Kennedy was friendly to Galar, but kind of waffled in some ways because Kennedy was always trying to play things both sides to some degree in, in different areas under John Kennedy. But like in 68, they were terrified and they just murdered everybody. I mean, MLK <laughs> was talking about the evil triplets of uh, racism, militarism and capitalism or economic exploitation. And Robert Kennedy's campaign was on peace in Vietnam, uh, economic justice and racial justice. So they were very much aligned and then they both get killed. Yeah. And you get Nixon instead and the, the Bretton Woods collapse, which begins in 68, doesn't really formally take place until 71, but the, by finagling things with their massive structural power over oil and then the interest rates in the late 70s and early 80s, the U.S. is able to re-engineer this system and come out more powerful. That's what people have to recognize is that their control over, the, over material resources and the structural power of the institutions of capitalism that, that the U.S. was able to uh, maintain made it so the U.S. came out of, of Vietnam more powerful. And that's, that's not something that's typically recognized. But once the U.S. gets this Rumpelstiltskin power over the economy, and then Reagan comes in, and then oil prices collapse and interest rates go down. But both of those things are controlled by the levers of power that mm-hmm. the U.S. commanded. So it's like, and then Reagan could say, see, Reaganomics is a great success because it's not as shitty as it was in the 70s. But the 70s would have been a lot nicer if oil had been almost free, their gas had been almost free, and there hadn't been those high interest rates. I mean, so this is the power that they commanded. I don't think that they command that kind of power anymore. I I just don't see the levers. They've tried to do some of these things. I think that when, if you recall, when Saudi Arabia started pumping out, really pumping out all this oil, and what was said at the time was, oh, they're trying to capture market share from frackers or something. But I thought, you know, that's that's not that can't be it. It must be that the powers that be at the time wanted to damage Iran, Venezuela, Russia, yep. and this that is was how they're exactly doing the it. Goal. And it didn't it didn't work though. And now, so I don't I don't see them. I caution optimism too. Although I don't think it matters if we're optimistic or pessimistic because we don't have any power in the U.S. anyway. I could say the sky is falling, or I could say it's going to be a utopia next week. It doesn't matter at all. But to get our analysis right, it's important for us personally. I don't see the U.S. as having the the levers to save this, and it's a little scary to me because empire, no empire, acts rationally to its own impending uh, collapse, and so this is this is worrisome. Well, yeah, you, Aaron, are one of the very few people I know who has talked about how important that oil crash was, and in general, the the commodities crash in 2014 and 2015. And that was entirely orchestrated. I mean, that we, what's funny is, you know, there's this idea, this neoliberal idea of like organic market forces and the free market and all that. No, all this stuff is, is macro and economics. It's all dictated by state policy. And you've talked about this, and I've done a lot of research on this going back to 2014. That was the beginning of the attempt to overthrow the Venezuelan government. And the U.S. really thought that that was like, they, like now we see Biden saying clearly that the U.S. goal is regime change in Moscow. He said it in his speech in Poland accidentally, but it's clear that's what their goal is. And they think that they can do it. They think this is a moment where Russia's weak enough 
and isolated enough, even though it's not really isolated, it's only isolated by the 15% of the population in the US, Western Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea, but otherwise, it's not isolated at all. But anyway, they think that this is the moment where they can orchestrate regime change in Russia. And in 2014, they thought that was the moment where they could overthrow the Venezuelan government. Chavez died in 2013. Maduro came in. He did win the election, but it was a close election. His mandate wasn't really challenged by the mainstream right wing. There were some fringe extremists, but most people accepted that he won. But he did not have a massive democratic mandate. And then in 2015, the right wing opposition won control of Venezuela's National Assembly. And the Chavista government, which is supposedly a dictatorship, allowed the right wing to take control of the National Assembly and basically launch yet another coup attempt. But so in that time period, in 2014 and 2015, that's also when the U.S. is really escalating the war in Syria. And we have mainstream reports. I have a Reuters article up in front of me right now called Carry Saudi King and Discuss Oil Supply, U.S. Official Says. It's from June 2014. And basically what this article, and there's a few other mainstream articles, what they acknowledge is that John Kerry was sent to Saudi Arabia in 2014. This is when King Abdullah was, was still king. And they basically made a deal where in order for uh, Saudi Arabia to send more support to the Contras in Syria, that, uh, excuse me, in order for the, well, this is the way it was sold. The, the argument they said, of course, we know behind the scenes that it's actually not really what happened, but the argument basically that these, these articles convey is that the U.S. was supposedly hesitant about sending weapons to the Contras in Syria, like these extremist Salafi jihadists, because the U.S. knew that there were not really moderate rebels, that they were dominated by al-Qaeda and extremist Islamist groups. So basically the argument was that, that Kerry told Saudi Arabia that the U.S. would send more military support, including anti-aircraft weapons, which it had not sent yet, through the Contras in Syria. And in return, Saudi Arabia would over-pump its oil and drop, massively drop the price of oil in the global market. Of course, we knew that the U.S. was still already supporting the, the so-called rebels in Syria. But the point is that this is acknowledged in mainstream media. And this Reuters article says, this is a quote from the article, the wealthy Gulf states have made clear they are ready to ride out the weak prices that have hurt the likes of Venezuela and Iran. Venezuela and Algeria had been calling for output cuts as much as 2 million barrels so per day. So this is in Reuters. So acknowledging clearly, also Maduro gave speeches around this time where he said in his speeches, obviously in Spanish, they weren't reported in English, but he said... The U.S. is trying to destroy our economy and Russia and Iran. And also, by the way, Brazil. This is when the Workers' Party was still in power in Brazil. Brazil is a major oil exporter, and it did hurt the Brazilian economy under Dilma Rousseff, which is partially what led to the economic crisis, which is what led to the 2016 impeachment. So that moment was a major moment where the U.S. and Saudi Arabia like destroyed the global oil market to try to do all this political and economic damage to multiple countries. And it was also at the time, let's not forget, of the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, the 2014 coup in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, the democratic referendum in which the vast majority of people in Crimea wanted to join the Russian Federation, and then the imposition of sanctions on Russia. So 
I mean, that was like 2014 and 2015, that massive commodities crash was completely orchestrated. And yeah, fracking played part of it. It was a significant role in it, but not the only reason. And that well, was like... Let, let, the, the other thing to add about the fracking, and I, I put this in American Exception, and I, I, I don't... I haven't, I've barely seen anybody else ever say this. So if this, is, if this holds true, then I'm, I'm pleased about that. I hope it does for my own sake. That, that quantitative easing played a big role in that. Yeah. Because these, the fracking operations in the U.S. are not economically really viable. It costs more to extract this uh, unless you have a high oil price. And it brought a whole lot of oil and, and such on the market. So it, it sort of created its own demise in so doing, especially if the U.S. is behind the scenes asking Saudi Arabia to pump more oil while it's, you know, channeling these these funds, which wouldn't really exist but for quantitative easing, uh, into this uh, hydro hydrocarbon fracking uh, industry, uh, so it, to me, it's like this is the this is not only oil abuse, but the U.S. was abusing its power over oil, which was dwindling but still there at the time, and then its power to create money out of thin air to even further give it more oil power, and yet it still didn't it didn't really change these these underlying conditions even with all that power. So that to me seems, that era seems like a key moment to look at where some of this boring financial and oil production business is actually pretty important to understand and that they, the U.S. still couldn't do what it wanted to do uh, at that point. And what else? And that was using a lot of weapons. And what has changed, and I think the real question, which is another significant factor that's different now, is MBS. And I, of course, I'll obviously preface by saying I think, you know, Mohammed Salman is horrible and I'm, no, I'm in no way praising this guy. I mean, the borderline genocidal war that he's overseen in Yemen alone. I mean, it's just I've done so much reporting on that. According to the United Nations, at least 377,000 Yemenis have died, which is a conservative estimate. But all that said, I mean, the CIA falling out with MBS after he killed Khashoggi, who is obviously a longtime CIA asset, that was a huge uh, crisis. And of course, we saw John Brennan, former CIA director, went on MSNBC. He referred to, I mean, he's a regular MSNBC talking head uh, contributor. He went on TV and MSNBC and he said explicitly, MBS is a cancer in the Saudi royal family that needs to be excised. And it was clear that the, the CIA was, was trying to have a palace coup, which is why MBS did like this internal purge and like, likely killed some of his cousins in like these strange plane crashes and like imprisoned bin bin talal in like the hilton and all this stuff it was like this internal purge to to get rid of all of his rivals i mean what's interesting now is mbs again i don't think he's like some great independent anti-imperialist leader by any stretch of the imagination he's awful but he's also not a u.s puppet in the same way that previous saudi leaders were and we see that with him playing footsie with Russia, talking about buying weapons from Russia. And now Saudi Arabia has refused to boost production in order to make up for the, the lack of Russian oil. And we saw this, this has been reported that the Biden administration was trying to tell MBS, look, we're trying to get off Russian oil. Can you increase your production? And he said no. So I think that's another significant factor here is that, again, I don't think Saudi Arabia is like some great independent country. It's always been really an extension of U.S. imperial power, going back to the famous uh, February 14th, 1945 meeting in which FDR met off of the coast of Egypt with King Ibn Saud and promised that 
you know, the U.S. would provide security for the Saudi royal family in return for oil and stability in the global oil market and all of that. But it is true that MBS is not completely compliant in the way that previous Saudi leaders were. And that he's also now talking about selling oil in the Chinese yuan, which is another huge blow to the petrodollar. So these are significant changes that I think that at least point toward a very different kind of international order. Yeah, and I think that have the, these things about nine eleven that come out, you know, that are pregnant with implication are I think have to be viewed in this context because yep. they're punishing MBS. Uh, it, right, but the thing it's like it's it's another case where it's very the U.S. is kind of I don't know how much it really if the, the more you look at this like because the things that they can really point to, who is the guy that that you can say in the Saudis that's the most blatantly implicated in 9-11 Bandar Bush it's Bandar Bush yeah like I don't know that like I, I, this is just to me seems like this kind of desperation of the U.S. it's like they want to have a, some sort of leverage over Saudi Arabia so they want to bring this up but this actually I, I don't see how they're really is it hubris is it desperation I mean the guy's nickname is Bandar Bush he's Prince Bandar bin Sultan but like he and the thing is he goes back to Iran Contra uh He's like one of the original American deep state guys, like the, as a cutout for the U, for U.S. intelligence. And then, and he was even credited. He was cited in that Seymour Hersh article, the redirection, published in two thousand and seven. So you know that it was actually coming from some people because Seymour Hersh is kind of a a guy with a lot of CIA sources. Yeah, this was coming from people who wanted to warn about this kind of nuttiness. And and ben, ben, uh, Sultan, Bandar bin Sultan, Bandar Bush, was mentioned in this article as the guy who was saying, oh, yeah, we can redirect these jihadis towards uh, the people. We can get them throwing the bombs in the right direction at Hezbollah and Syria, which is when you if you stop and think about it, what's what do they say? Like, what is what are the implications of that, of him expressing that he is able to do that? We like 9-11 was a bunch of Saudis. And now you've got this Saudi guy, Bandar Bush, who's saying, Oh yeah, if the jihadis do what we tell them. We tell them to attack Syria. They'll attack Syria, Hezbollah. No, no worries. And then it happens. Years later, the this whole thing breaks out in Syria and so on, and it comes true, and people can't. It's it's like you just can't you can't go there. So this into what is going on in Saudi Arabia is is fascinating, and it is. There's no good guys here. It really is like some Game of Thrones type business yeah. where it's like, and, and you see why because, I mean. Ben, like Ben Sultan could end up, or not Ben Sultan, uh, MBS could end up like uh, Gaddafi. I mean, the US, the Gaddafi was welcomed by the U.S. back into the fold. They said, give up your WMD programs and we'll make you a member of the club. And then he gets, you know, reamed with the, and bayoneted and droned and his country gets turned into a, a hellhole, uh, which was a very prosperous country. So it's like, I don't even know how you, I feel not like I'm on solid footing when I critique any statesman who is dealing in these circumstances because it's the game of Thrones and you, you'll get, you know, you'll get sodomized to death if you, if you miscalculate like Gaddafi did. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's crazy, but it is noteworthy that, that he doesn't seem to be the puppet that he once was. And what does that portend? Yeah. I think all of this with Saudi Arabia is very important. I mean, I was talking about China and I think obviously the most important difference now is the rise of China because, you know, when people talk about the rise of China, I think, that that in some ways that that term the rise of China is uh, it it downplays what we're talking about. 
the, the fact is, if you do purchasing power parity analysis, which is much better than GDP, because GDP is usually measured in dollars, and only one country can make dollars, according to PPP analysis, purchasing power parity, China has the largest economy in the world. And it's, it's continuing to grow more and more every year. Well, the, the, the growth in the U.S. is mostly like stock buybacks. It's all in the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate. It's not really in production. Chinese economy continues to grow and grow. We're already at a point where many countries around the world, their top trading partner is not the U.S., it's China. And that's just going to keep continuing. So I think that's why we're seeing this moment of crisis over Ukraine and potentially Taiwan. The U.S. is on the verge of recognizing Taiwan as independent. We saw the State Department just change its language. I mean, all of that's extremely important. But I think this is Saudi Arabia is also, it's not nearly at the same level as China, but it does represent a significant shift because the role of Saudi Arabia, of course, since its creation as a nation state early in the 1940s and 50s, has been as a, a, a proxy of Washington, the British at, at first and also in now Washington. And the killing of Khashoggi, I think, was a real turning point because, as you know, I mean, Khashoggi was one of the CIA's main assets going back to the 1980s in Afghanistan. Well, his, his father, his father was the key, uh, or his uncle, right? His uncle was Adnan Khashoggi. Oh, no, who, who we're talking? About, we're talking about Adnan Khashoggi, who was Adnan killed. Khashoggi and his, but it was Jamal Khashoggi who was the Washington Post reporter. That was his, that was his nephew. So the Khashoggi's, and probably Jamal goes back about that. I, I, about well, he goes back further. I don't know, but in the in the seventies and eighties, Adnan Khashoggi was the world's richest man. But he was really just like a arms and and uh, an all purpose guy for the for the CIA and the and the deep state. Even beside, well, the CIA was actually in a little bit of trouble in the seventies, and so they outsourced these things. And Khashoggi was one of these elements for that. Well, His, but the Adnan but, Khashoggi, Adnan, but also Jamal Khashoggi, who was the one who was killed was also yeah. a major CIA asset. And yes. back in the 1980s, he was in, in Afghanistan fighting with the Mujahideen. And there's this, this infamous photo of him in a newspaper. I think it was um, Arab News or something, which is one of like the Saudi regime mouthpieces. And there's a photo of him holding like a giant rocket launcher with a bunch of Mujahideen. Nice. And, and he, the, I mean, what really happened is that he was loyal to a different faction of the Saudi family, Saudi royal family, and MBS killed him. And what's, what's so crazy about that whole story is it was crazy to see that the Western media was like openly going along with Turkish intelligence because it wasn't just the U.S. It was obviously the CIA was trying to punish MBS for killing its asset, Jamal Khashoggi, but also Turkey. Don't forget that it was Turkey that leaked like the audio at first and then they, like, they leaked the video. It was all from the Turkish embassy. And they were the ones really pushing this hard out of the, and the fallout between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And also at the same time, Qatar played a huge, huge role in this. And Khashoggi, who was a columnist at the, at the Washington Post, his articles were being written by the Qatar Foundation. And this, is, this was acknowledged in the Washington Post. I actually just got this up because I wanted to, to make sure I had it completely right. The Washington Post published an article about the killing of Khashoggi. And this is, an art, this is a line in this article in the Washington Post, quote, perhaps most problematic for Khashoggi were his connections to an organization funded by Saudi Arabia's regional nemesis, Qatar. Text messages between Khashoggi 
and an executive at Qatar Foundation International showed that the executive, Maggie Mitchell-Salem, at times shaped the columns he submitted to the Washington Post, proposing topics, drafting material, and prodding him to take a harder line against the Saudi government. Khashoggi also appears to have relied on a researcher, a researcher and translator affiliated with the Qatar Foundation. So the Qatar Foundation was using him to push this stuff against the Saudi family, against MBS. And obviously that and the CIA and Qatar are, of course, very close. Qatar has the largest U.S. military base in the Middle East. So all of that was like a major CIA operation. And I'm sure it really angered MBS, which pushed him even further. I mean, he's not really against the U.S., but it pushed him further in a kind of more independent camp where he now like plays Russia and the U.S. against each other. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And then we could we could even we're about out of time here because I could also talk about we could also talk about Turkey and how that has that a similar thing has happened in Turkey with the Gulenists and so on. You know, Fethullah Gulen, Jamal Khashoggi. There's some parallels between. I mean, there's big differences, but there's some like things that their cases demonstrate that I think are worth looking at. Yeah, but I, mean, I think it's better to have. Gulen is have, obviously protected by U.S. intelligence. He's living yes. in like his compound in Pennsylvania. I mean, come on. Like, I think it's close to me. It's like half an hour away. And his the guy that sponsored his visa was uh, Graham uh, Fuller, the CIA officer involved in uh, Mujahideen operations and so on. Uh, we also didn't get to talk about woke imperialism, which is going to have to wait till next time. But um, uh, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us today, Ben. And uh, we'll do something uh, in the near future. And uh, you do great work over there, so I'm I'm glad that you've got this new outlet launched, and it's been great so far to see what you've been putting out. Thanks, man. Yeah, and I'm gonna have you on my show soon to talk about your book. I can't wait to read it. And also, when uh, when I have you on, well, speaking of all the the uh, Erdogan stuff and Gulenism. We'll talk about uh, what's the basketball player um, Ennis Freed- Freedom, Freedom Ennis yeah. Carter, or what? What is? What did he change his name? Ennis Ennis Freedom, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I forget what his. It was Cantor, right? But no, yeah. But uh, yeah. we'll we'll talk about him and all of that. It's a. Uh, but yeah, oh, I mean, thanks for having me. The show's great, and and what I think what we'll probably end up doing is just going on each other's show all the time. So yeah, I'll definitely absolutely. have you on a lot. Awesome. Yeah, because the shit's not going to get any more calm in the world, so there's going to be plenty to talk about. Yeah, and, and it's sad. I agree with you that even a lot of people on the left don't, don't focus on a lot of these topics that I think are so important, and your research is so good. So, yeah, mutual admiration. It was, it was fun being here. Yep, thanks. Back at you, and I'll see you soon. We have a big announcement for American Exception uh, today, and that is that we are launching the AmericanException.com website, which you can visit at AmericanException.com. And we're going to have essays, videos, links to things related to the podcast, uh, things related to the book, uh, everything related to uh, the American Exception podcast and my, you know, academic work and writing and so on. And then things that are contributed by the whole crew here, because now it's becoming kind of a group effort. And in that spirit, I wanted to talk to two people who have been instrumental in helping to uh, make this, bring this day about. That is Mike Lesiak and Seamus McGinnis. 
So I am wanting to let people know what uh, to expect from this site. We've got my article, the first one is coming out, and then we have one from uh, the lost one from Peter Dell Scott coming very shortly. We also have the, the JFK debate video that we've been working on for a while that'll be there on YouTube, but also posted at the site. So those are some things people can look forward to. But uh, I was wanting to know, uh, and I hope our listeners would want to know, what got you interested in sort of radical, deep politics, uh, Mike? Um, what's, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in this material that um, you know, gets censored so much by academia and the media. Uh, so I, I guess I, it's because I teach like intro to rhetoric type courses at university. And so I got really interested in like the rhetoric of conspiracy theory and the way that kind of it gets twisted around really weirdly and ironically where it's almost it like it, it's become a code word and it is coded as like right wing. Whereas you actually look at so many of like the standard conspiracy theory, quote unquote conspiracy theories that like we actually know are true. Clearly like left leftists should be interested in it like much more so. And so I'm really interested in basically stuff like that. Um, also the way, especially this happens in academia, right? Like there's a lot of work in academia on conspiracy theory, but it just sort of takes as its starting assumption that these are all sort of weird psychological, like people are just too interested. Like it goes back to like the Hofstadter type popper stuff where it's sort of like, there's something wrong with you if you actually care about this stuff. Um, and then, I don't know, beyond that, I, don't, I became a dad. And when that happens, you get interested in, like, woodworking and the JFK assassination. So, like, that's what happened to me. So, Very good, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, my, I, my predated fatherhood for me, but I can see how it, that would lead you to, uh, you know, go in different directions, unpredictable directions. Because I don't think that's one of those things they mention in those books of, like, what do you expect when you're expecting? <laughs> Which I was assigned to read, but sadly did not get around to reading. Uh, Seamus, what about you? How did you get into these uh, areas that are uh, so, you know, stigmatized by the prevailing academic discourse? And you just graduated from college, so um, you're, you should be freshly indoctrinated with all the sort of liberal platitudes and so <laughs> on, and yet you're not. So how did this how did this come to pass? Almost worse than that. I just finished my uh, economics undergraduate degree, so, you know, you get exposed to more of the 90s like clinton consensus type type rhetoric which you would think that they'd have moved on from that by now because even paul krugman has but the 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 curriculum has not so you get exposed to a lot of that and i think that sort of has uh has one of two effects either you get pulled into that and you know you watch that happen to some people or you get really repelled away from it so i mean i came down I, i'm down in the south at a pretty or i've been at a pretty conservative school and, um, you know, that either pulls you right or for me, it pushed me way to the left. And um, so I, I came here not expecting that. But uh, across college, it's sort of the, the classic story of getting radicalized while you're in college. But then um, I'd say a couple of years ago, I read um, Vincent Bevins's um, The Jakarta Method. And that was my first real foray into, you know, CIA and foreign policy and some of the, the things of the American empire that you maybe don't hear about. And I was always interested in history, but you kind of you get the dry, you know, mainstream version of history and uh, you, you never realize how much is going on that 
that doesn't get talked about or gets suppressed. So after I read that, then I ended up, um, I read The Road to 9-11, Peter L. Scott, and um, and you had your appearances on, on Truanon, and then I read Dark Alliance, um, Gary Webb, all in this span of about two months. And that's really, that's a crash course. That'll get you started. And, and once once those doors open or once that it becomes less implausible like mike was talking about once once you destigmatize it in your brain because all of it gets grouped up you have like jfk assassination and chemtrails and the moon landing and QAnon get thrown around all together in liberal media and once you start to separate them out and see whether intentionally or not some of those are thrown in there to kind of muddy the waters you you pick up on what else is is happening and I'd say reading, you know, listening to you, reading your articles, and then, uh, of course, uh, Peter Dale Scott has been probably like the leading push for me to to get into all this. Yeah, Mike, what are some of your favorite books in this uh, in this realm that you've read over the years? Uh, I really like Dark Alliance. Um, what's the what's the the, uh, the Douglas book? JFK and the Unspeakable. I really yeah, that like, for me that was a one big... of my favorites. Yeah, I read that after after the Obama, and that really did sort of change my opinion on some things. Yeah, and like if you like look at the footnotes on that, there's like it's like a thousand per chapter or something, and like you can go through the footnotes, and it's like actually there and accessible, and you can like look at these sources. And if you have like half a brain, and you can tell the difference between like a primary and a secondary source, you can look up stuff that should be enough to radicalize you, frankly. Um, I also, I like Lisa Pisa's book on uh, the Bobby Kennedy assassination. It's also for the same reason, because you can look up these sources that are just like scans of old CIA documents talking about like, yeah, like we can do mind control. Um, Like, I think one of my favorites is talking about that sort of uh, piece spends a lot of time talking about the fact that theoretically you shouldn't be able to hypnotize someone to do something that they like against their will or something that they wouldn't normally do. And there's like this old CIA document you can find just by like Googling her footnotes and you can find it in like the CIA, uh, like the website. And it's just someone sort of talking about like, yeah, like, I guess we can't make people do things against their will. But also if they're hypnotized, we can just trick them. So like, whatever, we can, we can basically do whatever we want. Um, And just the fact that, so, I mean, I guess I like books where you can do that and look those things up and it's just sort of like even just one of those sources should be enough to like make your brain melt. Yeah. I think they need more books with footnotes rather than end notes because, uh, when you start to get into stuff of a certain level of complexity, uh, it's really handy to be able to check them like that. I have a, I think one of my Peter Dell Scott books, maybe the war conspiracy version that I have is like that. And it's super helpful. Yeah. Peter, uh, which book is it? He has one chapter in... It's the one about Oswald, uh, where he's talking about Oswald was basically like a dangle. And he has like yeah. one chapter that's just like his footnotes with comments because it's like, here, let me... Like, I'm not going to connect the dots, but he just sort of like leaves them all there for you. And it's right. like, here are all the, like the weird things. Like, yeah. Think of this oh, one yeah. I was listening. Just, I was listening. I was listening to Dallas 63 yeah, recently, yeah, the audiobook version of that. And, uh, you know, I, I it's just some of the stuff with Oswald you forget. And then you're like, that is inexplicable. <laughs> all the all the Lee Henry Oswalds or the uh, when 
the fact that Oswald was uh, advertised height and weight were advertised, but it was wrong. But it was like wrong in the same way that the intelligence files were wrong. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> that's so absurd that the guy would look up at the sixth floor and say, "Oh yeah." There's a guy, yeah. and he's about 5'9". Like, you can't tell if somebody, <laughs> somebody's 6'5 or 5'2", uh, most likely. Like, nah. Yeah, so it's a window that's, like, it's, like, waist height, right? And it's, yeah. like, fourth floor from, like, far away. <laughs> it was sixth floor. But I looked yeah. at one on the that was on the fourth floor from outside. I went, you know, because we live near a dormitory, and I was like, okay, the fourth floor is the highest floor. If there's somebody at the window... There is no way I would be able to tell you. I mean, if they were really fat, I might say he was probably over 200 pounds, over 250 pounds, something like that. There's no way you would get precise with that. But he he dug all those things up. So this is all fascinating material. And when you do get into it, as you guys say, the more you look into it, you can't really buy the official stories on very important events. And then once that's the case, you got to try to explain how it is. Uh, and how it's how, how what what's really happening, and uh, I mean, related well, to the uh, the Douglas work, one of the things that's nice about that one because Talbot brings this up, I think, at the end of Brothers, um, just sort of the framing of say like Kennedy as like oh Kennedy's not a peacenik, and framing of him as this sort of like serial philanderer kind of thing, right? Um, whereas like the Douglas book is really nice because on top of the, all the very specific conspiracy stuff that's sort of interwoven with like Kennedy's actual like foreign policy decisions and what he was wrestling with. And it's sort of, that is also in itself conspiracy stuff aside, like that by itself is a kind of counter narrative to the way in which like Kennedy is usually presented. Right. Yeah. And the guys that have been, I mean, Ted Sorensen represented the more peace, peace loving side of, of Kennedy but he was in a difficult situation in that the whole establishment was basically insane. <laughs> and uh, so it's like you, you can't the, – the federal government, the military, the CIA under Kennedy was doing pretty terrible things. So that, that's why you can get somebody like Bazanko who can – I won't say so plausibly because I know more of the record. But who can make an argument saying, okay, well, the, under Kennedy – the Kennedy administration, the U.S. was doing X, Y, and Z, you know, messed up things. And it's like, well – there's a lot of truth to to them. He didn't completely reverse the course. He was trying to end the Cold War, which was the structural reason why you couldn't change any of these policies. And you could see he wanted to change them, and you could see how they went back. So this is something we've gone into great depth here. Um, Seamus, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think that that's kind of shows on either side of that debate it's easy to treat any administration as a monolith and you're always going to have that sort of internal conflict. So I think you can, you know, you can find whatever you're looking for if you're trying to, you know, like the debate, uh, Bazanko, uh, you know, you can, you can pick out all the things that make JFK to be a hawk, or I think there is a, a, a tendency because of the assassination and everything. There's sort of this martyrdom, martyrdom urge with JFK to make him out to be perfect. And it's neither one. But I, I, I think Douglas does a really good job representing this sort of internal external conflict for him of he's trying to stay elected. And, you know, he knows the alternative of like Goldwater is is not going to fly. So he's trying to kind of toe the line there and still, you know, create these back channels and everything. And that's one of the best parts. I think Blowback did a really good job recording that, too. But um, JFK and the Unspeakable covers the the cuban missile crisis in a way where you you get to walk away 
sort of having that feeling of, I, I know some people attack the idea of it, but that, that the Cuban Missile Crisis is a really affecting event for both Kennedy and Khrushchev, because, I mean, no two people have ever been so close to just eradicating everything, and that, that can't have no impact on, on, your, on your psyche. So I, I think he, he records that really well in terms of you get a look at his sort of inner life uh, as you go through it, and that is a big part of the story because, I mean, you, you get an idea of what he was up against, and him and Robert both kind of, it comes into full view exactly how powerful their enemies are and when it's kind of too late. Yeah, yeah, the Robert Kennedy thing will drive you crazy because it's the <laughs> foreshadowing of it. Like when he's talking, to, when Gar, when you know that Garrison is using back channel to basically oh, yeah. try to get him the message of like, hey, you need to come out and say that you're coming after the killers or they're going to kill you. But of course, he doesn't do that. Uh, it's really, really, it's it's. I, for some reason, the RFK thing just really gets me. At, there was a Netflix thing, which was actually pretty good, the Netflix series on RFK, and like you're watching what he's trying to do with his campaign, and and you, if you know the backstory, they don't talk that much about his plans to investigate the assassination. I think maybe they only do at the end. I can't remember, but when you know that angle, then it's uh, really pretty heartbreaking. Uh, do they mention it explicitly? They mention they talk about the fact that there were too many bullets in the gun and that he was shot at an upward angle of point blank range from behind from behind and Sirhan was in front of him. So they talk a lot about that those angles to the assassination. I don't think that they mention that he was going to reinvestigate or if they do it's very quickly, but I can't remember so maybe somebody can correct me on that. But it's it's really worth it's worth watching, which is shocking because most of the stuff on Netflix is 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 bad. And I mean they passed on Oliver's documentary which would have been popular and would have had a big buzz on netflix and they for corporate political hegemony reasons they passed on that which is really disappointing but um that that series is actually really good so i'm hoping that we can um have more video uh videos posted also at the website they're not going to be the quality of that rfk documentary because we don't have that kind of production budget but that that's one of the things we'll we'll be able to do um along with other projects that we do have planned. It's going to be, we're going to go for quality over quantity. So I'm not attempting to release a whole lot of material or feel compelled to like release X amount of articles in X amount of time. So as far as articles go, we're going to put things that we're really happy with and that are uh, high quality uh, rather than putting dubious things just to get material out. So people can expect that. Uh, at the website, and uh, we're going to continue to try to link with the book and the podcast and other media appearances that uh, that I do there as well. You'll be able to find all those things. And uh, Seamus and Michael will, will hopefully contribute uh, to some writing projects down the road there as well. Um, and with that, I think that we will call this episode a wrap. Uh, I want to thank Ben Norton for showing up and also Mike and Seamus for coming here today and for all their work, and you'll hear a lot more from us. So go to AmericanException.com and check it out. Uh, it's up, it's live now, so uh, we're excited about that, excited about what's to come. I want to thank Ben Norton again for joining us. We could have just kept going, which is always a good sign in my estimation. Please follow and support Ben Norton over at Multipolarista.com. Again, 
I want to say that I'm really grateful for the work that Mike Lesiak and Seamus McGinnis have put into the launch of AmericanException.com. I bought that domain name a couple years ago, and after all that has happened, I'm very glad that I did. Mike and Seamus have been wonderful to work with, and I'm very excited to finally have something up there. We have some interesting things coming up for the podcast. We are, of course, continuing our Peter Dell Scott series, and we also have a couple of great guests lined up for the first episode of June, so stay tuned for that. Big thanks to Dana Chavaria for the audio engineering, Casey Moore for the episode art, and Mock Orange for the music. Chase the light, friends. <laughs>